0: This is gonna be the fourth and final sermon in this trifecta of healthy church life or healthy, the healthy Christian life. God commands you individually and he commands us corporately to be characterized by unending joy, unending prayer, and unending thanksgiving. If you have your Bibles open to verses 16, 17, and 18, I'll read them one more time, but this time I just want to draw your attention to the adverbs, all three of them, different words, but the same idea. He says, We are to rejoice always, we are to pray without ceasing, and we are to give thanks in all circumstances. And I said the last uh, few lessons in the Greek, the descriptive adverb or phrase, comes first, which means there's an emphasis not just on what we do, but the way in which we do it. These are supposed to be permanent markers for God's people. Paul also says at the end of verse 18, they are God's will for us in Christ Jesus. So whatever you're going through right now or in this season, whether it's a difficult time, an enjoyable time, a very ordinary feeling time, whatever we're going through, If you ask yourself, what does God want from me? What is God's will? The answer will always include rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. We had two uh, messages focusing on joy, one message focusing on prayer, and today will be our final message here. We'll be focusing on giving thanks, which is the third attribute there. Giving thanks, it's it, one of the tricky and interesting things about it is that being thankful is not an easy concept to define. It, it, it's such a basic idea, such a basic concept that you can't really explain it well using other words. If someone asks you, What does it mean to give thanks? What are thanks, Mom? What are they? How do I give thanks if I don't know what that is? I can give money. I can give advice. I can give a gift. What does it mean to give thanks? So I turned to a dictionary this week, looked up the word thanks. It said to give thanks is to express gratitude. So now I have a synonym, but if I want to know what is gratitude, so I turn to gratitude. And again, the dictionary says gratitude is the state of being grateful. So I now have to go look up grateful. So that same diction, I turned to grateful. And it says, grateful means to express gratitude. And now you're caught in a loop, an infinite loop, and you got nowhere to go. So what does it mean to give thanks? What does it mean to be grateful in addition to thanksgiving or thanks and gratitude? Let me help us have a better understanding by sharing three more words. I think these words will help us not just understand some important aspects of thanksgiving, but they'll help us grow because we wanna be intentional. These things don't happen automatically. Praying, rejoicing, giving thanks, they don't happen spontaneously in your life. There needs to be some intentionality behind them. So when we understand what giving thanks is, we're better equipped to do it. The first word you can jot down is awareness awareness. There has to be, in order for someone to be grateful, you have to be aware that something outside you or someone outside you made this thing possible. So I go to my kitchen cupboard, I open the cupboard, I grab a bowl for a bowl of cereal, and that didn't magically happen. That bowl somehow got this. Somebody made that bowl. Somebody bought it. Somebody brought it to my house. Someone ensured that it was clean enough for me to use when I needed it. Someone ensured that it was in the place that I expected it to be. That None of that happened on its own. You need to be aware. It is the opposite of taking things for granted. So awareness is the first aspect of gratitude. A second word we should associate with gratitude is assignment. So there needs to be awareness, and there needs to be an assignment. Because it's one thing to know intellectually that someone uh, bought me my tube of toothpaste... But the next level is to assign responsibility to someone. Someone else did that. So in that case, my wife went to Costco and she buys a toothpaste. So when I open the drawer, there's toothpaste. Who did this? Who made this possible? To whom do I assign responsibility? And the second aspect of gratitude reminds us that Thanksgiving must have a recipient. Gratitude and thanksgiving are directional words. They need to be aimed at someone. You can paint a painting all on your own, but painting a painting is not the same as making a phone call or sending a text message. When you can't just if you if you're holding your phone and someone says and you say I'm on a phone call, but you're not talking to anybody, you're just playing with the phone. You didn't actually make a phone call. To make a phone call, to send a text message implies there's someone on the other end. There is supposed to be a recipient. It's a directional word. There are people who will sometimes use the word thankful in a generic sense. I'm just so thankful. And if there is no object either expressed explicitly or intended in their heart, they're using the word thankful to really say that they're happy. And happy and thankful are related words, but they're two different things. Happiness is an internal feeling. It's it's inside you. And that's not a bad thing. But thankfulness, again, has a direction. It has a direction. It is expressed outwardly toward someone, or more particularly, uh, sometimes it's something, but really it should be a person. And that second aspect of gratitude, is takes, it takes a little more time. There's an extra moment. There's an extra little mental energy to say, who do I assign responsibility to? To whom do I assign responsibility? If I sit down at my kitchen table and I place my elbow on something gooey and sticky, I am immediately aware that that's not mine. Someone outside me has that, and depending how inconvenienced I am, I'm going to immediately seek to assign responsibility. Who did this? Who spilled and didn't clean up their mess? So there's awareness in that instance, there's assignment. But there's one final aspect missing, and that's number three. The final aspect is appreciation. So you have awareness, you have assignment, and you have appreciation. And that reminds us that gratitude and thankfulness are positive words. It's not just the the opposite would be to blame someone. You're assigning responsibility in a negative sense. But this is the positive side of, of blaming someone. Gratitude and thankfulness are the expression of positive emotions. If you feel sad, if you feel inconvenienced, if you feel upset, and then you aim that at someone, you're angry, or you're bitter, or you're resentful. That's the expression of, of negative emotions. Thanksgiving and gratitude are the counterpart to that. It's, it's the flip side to anger and resentment. You have a positive feeling, you, you, you delight, you appreciate something, and then you aim that at someone else. And you assign them responsibility for whatever it is you're experiencing. Hopefully, that helps us understand that those are some basic components to gratitude and to thankfulness. There is an awareness, there is an assignment, and there is an appreciation. But as basic as a concept as this might be, we have to recognize that giving thanks is not automatic and it's not innate. Kids innately delight, they can, innately they can feel joy. You give kids presents, new clothes, new toys, they enjoy them, but every parent knows what it's like to see your kid run off to the next room to play with their toy, and then to have to tell them, come back, come back, and make sure you say thank you. The fact that thankfulness is not innate is implied even in the fact that this command is given. Keep giving thanks, and there are many other places in the New Testament where we're commanded. Give thanks. Whenever you enjoy something, when you appreciate something, it pleases you, you need to recognize the one who has, who, who has given this to you. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, God says we are to give thanks in every circumstance. Literally, it just says in everything. He's not saying we have to give thanks for every aspect of life because there are some difficult aspects of life, even, uh, even when we're bored or in pain. But he says that in every season of it, in it, we need to find a way to give thanks. And Paul doesn't explicitly say whom we should give thanks to, but it should be clear enough. We give thanks to God. And, that's, and, and God is the, 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 the uh, recipient of, of all of them. We rejoice always. We rejoice in the Lord. We pray without ceasing to the Lord and we give thanks to the Lord. In other words, he's saying whatever season of life, whatever's happening at the moment, we need to stop. We need to be aware of what we're giving. And the world understands this. Sometimes you hear the word mindfulness. Oh, just pause and reflect on how you feel. You're happy now. That's not a bad thing, but it needs to then be aimed. You need to assign that joy, credit. You need to give credit to someone, and then you appreciate. And you don't just appreciate the gift you've been given. You are to appreciate and love. You're giving thanks to the gift giver, which is our Heavenly Father. Well, what are the kinds of things that we should be thanking God for? What are the reasons to give thanks? So I studied just the terms for giving thanks in the New Testament. And basically, the reasons we give thanks can be broken down into two categories. One is common grace. The other category is special grace. And we'll talk about them one at a time common grace and special grace. In theological studies, common grace is a term to use, is the term used to talk about God's goodness to all mankind. The word grace, sometimes people will say it means unmerited favor. You're getting something that you don't deserve, a good thing, that's grace. Common grace is God's goodness in a general sense to all mankind, whether someone is trusted in Christ or not, whether they're evil or good. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45. He says, our heavenly Father makes his Son, speaking of the physical, literal sun in the sky, he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the, the world delights in creation. The world delights in seasons as they pass. The world delights in abundant crops that come through rain. Jesus reminded us about that truth, one, to encourage us to love our enemies, but in hearing that, it also helps us understand who God is. God is a good God. God gives good things to both righteous and unrighteous, undeserving people. That's called common grace. It's a gift that's common to all mankind. Unbelievers can enjoy many things in this world. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Many of the people Jesus healed would not come and and surrender to him. That was an act of common grace. You have one story of the the lepers who came, and nine went away, healed. One came back to give thanks. That's a general characteristic of the world. The, the, The majority of the world does not respond to God in the appropriate way for the good things he has given It's easy to look at the world and say, life is hard. There are lots of hard things in this life, but we need to recognize that the starting place for creation was good and we have fallen from it. All of us as sinful human beings, we fall short of the glory of God. We do not reach the standard that he has created for us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all all our might. And because of that, what we deserve is immediate judgment. But that's not what happens. God demonstrates to the world, to sinners, me included, patience and kindness. And so, no matter how bad the world might get or be, it's not as bad as we deserve as sinners. This was part of the message that Paul and Barnabas preached in the city of Lystra. So, there are Greeks there, unbelieving Greeks, and they teach about God's common goodness. This is from Acts chapter 14, verse 17. They said, God did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, with with sustenance and gladness. And so when Paul talks about God's common grace and even Jesus' comments about rain, he connects it to the most common, common grace to mankind, which is food. When you study, it's interesting, you study giving thanks in the New Testament, there are about a dozen references of giving thanks to food. Not to food, to God, for food. Jesus miraculously provides bread and fish, and more than one gospel tells tell us, after he, ma- he multiplies it, he, before he begins to distribute it, he pauses and he gives thanks Jesus sits down with his disciples at the last Passover and before he distributes the cup and the bread, he pauses and he gives thanks. It was part of also the order of the Passover celebration. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is in a storm at sea. They think they're going to capsize. They're going to crash. He says, we need to stop. We haven't eaten. You need to eat some food. And before they eat, it says, Paul gives thanks. Why do we give thanks before we eat? Because we're recognizing that God has created a world and this world gives to us both the capacity to nourish, to be nourished, and to delight. And this goes back to what we were talking about last week with with prayer. God created this world to serve the goodness of, of mankind. God makes the world. He fills it. He says, it's good. And then he makes mankind. He says, you have dominion over it. And so God has given us the things that we need to promote and sustain culture. God made chickens and God made cows and God made onions and God made garlic and salt and pepper and cheese and potatoes and rice and beans and asparagus and whatever you want. God made those things. And there will be Christians debating as to what kinds of foods are best to eat and best as stewards of the world or stewards of our bodies. But what is not up for debate is that we are to enjoy God's good gift of food with thanksgiving. The Roman church was, was struggling with this. This is out of Romans 14. There was a debate, and the same debate happened in the Corinthian church, over whether or not they should eat meat. And it wasn't about their, their dietary restrictions. It was a religious thing because there was meat being sold in the market, and we assume at a lower price, that was being sold by idol temples. So they would go into the temple of Artemis or Zeus. They would sacrifice an animal. You have tons of meat. So they turn around to the, 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 the market, and they sell the meat. And some Christians said, it's cheaper, bless the Lord, I'm going to eat the meat. And other Christians said, no, 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 that was sacrificed to, to an idol. That's a false god. Why am I going to eat that? that that's, that's not good. Their, their consciences were, were stricken. They, they said, no, that's sinful. And here's part of what Paul tells them in Romans 14, verse 6. He says, the one who eats, meaning the one who eats meat, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. So whether you eat a certain food or not, what's the common factor? You give thanks. Thanksgiving. You can give thanks for your potatoes and your ribeye, or kind of salad burrito, or you give thanks for your tofurkey or quinoa salad, whatever it is, whatever it is you like. You give thanks. You give thanks, and so kids, you gotta understand the same thing. When you pray before you eat, and parents, we gotta make sure our kids know this. It's not a ritual, we gotta pray, otherwise you know, things, bad things might happen. It's a, it's a time to pause. And, and if your kids are like mine, you, know, you, you sit down, the food's there, and if they could, they're gonna swallow half the plate as fast as they can. And you go, wait, wait let's pray. We're stopping to thank God for what he has provided. And even if whether you're gonna enjoy the meal or not, we're called to give thanks for his provision. So speaking to the Corinthians about this issue, Paul asks them a rhetorical question. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. That's, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 30. In other words, he's saying, how are you going to accuse me of, of sinning with this meal if this meal, for me, it, it leads me to genuine thanksgiving. Along the lines of the common grace of food, I, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter four. We'll get to it in just a second. 1 Timothy chapter four, verse one. Before we look at that, in thinking about this topic, I was reminded of, of, of a hymn. And some of you might know this. It was written by Isaac Watts in 1715. It was first published. And it was a hymn specifically aimed at teaching children to praise God for, God, for his creation for his provision, it's called I Sing the Almighty Power of God. And the first verse of the song says, I sing the almighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at God's command and all the stars obey. So you wake up, and you see a beautiful sky, a blue sky, a bright sun. You go out at night, you see a moon, the stars, you see the beauty of that. That's God's creation. The second verse continues, more reasons to give thanks, more reasons to praise God. It says, I sing the goodness of the Lord who filled the earth with food, who formed the creatures through the word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky God filled this world with good things for us to enjoy and then for us to give thanks that that's part of the purpose of God's common grace he's demonstrating his goodness and and and, and sadly there are people and groups in this world who even in the name of Christ will try to erase or even villainize that aspect of creation. They might say it's wrong to enjoy the physical pleasures of this world. Some of that comes out of the medieval times where they elevated the spiritual over the physical and denied what God created. If God created Adam and Eve, he made them out of the dust of the ground and gave Him a physical body and he said it is good. If you ever heard the, the people will say, philosophers might say the body is the prison of the soul. That is not a biblical idea. God gave you a body. And he gave you a soul. Both are good. You go to Revelation 21, 22, the end of the Bible, and we have new bodies. There's nations, there's trees, there's creation, there's food in the eternal heaven. So groups come, though, and say, no, 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 you need to put that away. And we know that physical desires can lead to sin. There is lust, there is immorality, there's covetousness. But the abuse of what is good shouldn't be used to erase the ability to receive what is good. It's not wrong, and it's not unhelpful to delight in what God has given. So Paul had to deal with those kinds of arguments. These people, instead of delighting in God's good gifts, said, no, 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 that's not good. We need to abstain, and abstain is a biblical word, but it's applied to, to sin, to lust, not to the joys of this life. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what he says, verse one. He says, now the spirit, he's writing to Timothy. He's trying to equip him as he leads the church. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith and they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and to teachings of demons. Verse two says, they'll do so through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So he's talking about false teachers spreading dangerous lies. Ultimately, the root of all false religion is Satan and the demons. What are those lies? What is it that the false teachers are saying about religion or holiness? Verse 3, these are false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Does that strike a chord with you at all? Do you know any religions like that? Do you know any groups that would say, no, 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 the best way to be close to God is to stay single forever. You, need to, you also need to stop eating certain foods. Uh, one of the terms for that, it's used in Colossians as well, is asceticism. Just deny yourself bodily pleasures because that will bring you closer to God. You may have heard that. You may have grown up in that kind of atmosphere. There's a problem with that kind of thinking And that is that it removes from your life things that God created for your good. So verse four explains that. Verse four, 1 Timothy 4, 4, Paul says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. There's the word. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. When my kids were younger, I don't know if I do it as often, they would ask me for a piece of candy. They'd ask for some dessert or leftover dessert from the party yesterday. Can I have some? And I would say, yeah, go ahead. And then right as they're eating and that first big smile that comes on their face when they're about to have a piece of cake, I would say, is it good? And they'd say, yes. Do you know why cake is good? And now they know the answer. They would say, because God is good. Cake is good because God is good. Uh, Randy Alcorn said puppies are delightful because we're made to delight in God. God has filled this creation with good things. Obviously, there are boundaries for the gifts God has given. But within his ordained boundaries, we're called to enjoy his gifts and to give him thanks. And Paul specifically here refers to the gifts of marriage and the gifts of food. The common grace of God has given us food to sustain us and to delight us. The common grace of God, it gives us the joys and the intimacy of marriage. The common grace of God gives us sports that we get to play and enjoy and watch. The common grace of God gives us music and other arts that we get to participate in or appreciate. The common grace of God gives us friendship. It gives us the joys of technology. This is part of human flourishing. Where do the stuff we use come from? With a chair, the pulpit, where did it come from? Your, Your car, your tires, where do they come from? the earth that God made. We use the resources that man was given dominion over for the flourishing of mankind. Obviously, that can be abused, but this is what God has done. In in, in the common grace of God, on a hot day, you feel the relief of going into the shade or of a cool breeze or of someone's car or house that has air conditioning and you walk in and you go, oh, that feels good. We should say, thank God. On a cold day, you put on a blanket or you go into someone's house and oh, it feels nice in here. Thank God. Those are all causes for giving thanks. Jump back for a moment with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. When we fail to recognize God, when we fail to give him thanks for his grace in our lives, that will be the beginning of both a personal spiritual downfall and a cultural downfall as well. Romans chapter 1 is for us a very important warning. It tells us about the downfall of any society, but it also warns us how to keep from that. How does a culture become undone before God? Go to go to the end of the chapter. We're kind of work our way backwards and we've done this before. At the end of the chapter, verses 29 to 32, Paul describes a culture that is in complete rebellion to God. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, verse 30, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventions of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, they, do, they know God's righteous decree. They know that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How does a culture get to that point? Well, right before that is verse 28, and it says it happened because God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Meaning it's a culture that can no longer reason correctly. The moral compass is broken. Their intellectual compass is broken. There isn't even a logic behind what's being promoted, and you see so many examples of that in culture. Even, even, even basic biology now is, is thrown out the window. Well, how do you get to that state as a culture? You back up and you go to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And the expression of those dishonorable passions continued. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations and were consumed with passion for one another. This is the direction of a culture. How did they get there? Back up to verse 24. Therefore, so everything's sequential. We're just working our way backwards. But therefore, before that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So you had a culture that just cast off restraint, pursued its own desires. How did you get there? What came before that? What's the beginning of this societal collapse? Look at verse 21. Romans 1:21. For although they knew God, this is the beginning. A culture knows God, But they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the beginning. If you back out just a little more, verses 19 and 20 speaks of God's common grace. The creation shows the goodness of God, the power of God doesn't tell you everything about God, but it's the start to know he exists. He's good. He's given us things. He has a, a moral standard. Chapter 2 talks about that with regard to our conscience, but the culture says, no, get rid of God. If you stop acknowledging God, if you stop recognizing him, if you stop giving thanks to him, you are on the path to futility and vanity. And that's what we're saying in our culture and around the world. You get rid of God, you erase him from people's minds, you replace him with, with false religion or science or psychology or anything else and the culture will fall apart. That's going to happen. But for the people of God, we are to prevent that by beginning with thanksgiving. In Ephesians chapter five, verse four, we're told that giving thanks is part of the solution to immorality and lust and covetousness. That's what it means when Jesus says you're the salt of the world. You're, you're keeping the culture back, not permanently. Only only the Holy Spirit can do that. If God can pray for a revival and awakening. But we start with giving thanks. So giving thanks is not a small incidental thing. It's not just a, a little ritual you go through. Giving thanks sets the trajectory of your spiritual life. Giving thanks sets the trajectory of your family. Giving thanks sets the trajectory of the church. And giving thanks will set the trajectory of a nation. We have so many things in this world that we can give God thanks for. As Christians, though, we have a whole different category of thanksgiving because we have God's special grace. Even in those times where the common grace of God can't come to our minds, we have reasons to give thanks, and that is special grace. Special grace refers to the special gifts of God to his children. It's not to everyone. It is to those whom he has, on whom he has bestowed his love, his eternal love, through Jesus Christ. And the truest heart of gratitude is one that understands the holiness of God, the depth of man's sin, and the sovereign grace and kindness of God in the good that we've received. Nothing in our salvation, none of the blessings of knowing God is something we have earned or is something that God owes to us. But he's freely given it to us in Christ. We sang it. Jesus paid it all. He did he did everything. He did well, he, you know, Jesus made the down payment for your salvation. You just got to make the monthly payments. That's not how it works. Jesus paid it all. Salvation is not a reward because you've completed some special task. It's God's gracious work in your life. 2 Corinthians 4 describes the unbelieving as being blinded by Satan. There's no capacity to see the truth. But what happens 2 Corinthians 4 says, God shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's all of God. Another song we sing, All I Have Is Christ. Everything is Christ. It's from Him, it's, it's for Him, it's through Him, it's to Him. Every level of credit that you want to give yourself with regard to your salvation is a notch of thanksgiving. You're going to give less. You lose gratitude when you bring down the grace of God in salvation. Colossians 1, said God, Colossians 1 says God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You didn't transfer yourself. You didn't say, you know what? I don't like this place. I'm going to God's kingdom. The moment you thought that and went, that's because God was working in you. He transferred you. He opened your eyes to your sin and to his grace and his mercy like the prodigal son. He came to his senses. That was the Holy Spirit who did it. God gave you redemption. God gave you forgiveness. You you didn't redeem yourself. It wasn't as if God said, you know, here's a wall. This is hell. Heaven's over there. Here's some ladders. If you want to climb, climb the ladder. I'll I'll provide the ladder, but you climb. That means the people in heaven would say, well, we climbed the ladder. Why didn't you guys climb the ladder? That's not what the Bible describes. In heaven, all glory is given to God. He had mercy on you in Christ, and he will have mercy on every single person who comes to him. If you've never gone to God in complete helplessness, begging for salvation and forgiveness, depending completely on the death of Jesus Christ and on his resurrection. God's will is that you do that today. That you say, I can't do it. All, all the common grace of this life is the closest an unbeliever will ever get to heaven. For the, the flip side, some of you have heard this before, all the pains of this life is the closest a Christian will ever get to hell. But the best of this life, the good things of this life is the, is the most an unbeliever will get because after this life is eternal judgment. But if you surrender to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, you trust your life to him, he will save you and you will give thanks now and forever. We covered in the lessons on, on rejoicing, reasons to rejoice and those are the same as reasons to um, give thanks. But I thought it was interesting, I just want to close with this, that as I studied the concept of giving thanks in the New Testament, there is one special aspect of God's special grace that stood out among the rest. It outnumbered every other reason as I categorized them. The most common example of giving thanks in the New Testament, the most common reason we can give thanks is our spiritual family. We know God saved us. We know God forgave us. He, yes, He has redeemed us. Amen. He's made us a new creation. He, he hears our prayers. He heals our diseases. He, he, he works in our lives. All those are good things. So I'm not trying to denigrate those. But it's interesting that the most common reason, the most commonly given biblical reason to give thanks in the New Testament is for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Over 15 times, the Apostle Paul says he gives thanks for the churches and for his co workers. Paul says to the Romans, I, I, I give thanks to God for you. I give, he gives thanks to God for Priscilla and Achilla. He gives thanks to God for the Corinthians. He gives thanks to God for the Ephesians. He gives thanks to God for the Philippians, for the, for the Colossians. He gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. He gives thanks to God for Philemon. And so what an example, and, 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 and what an opportunity to stop and ask ourselves, okay, I give thanks, God for all, I give thanks to God for all these things for me, for me but I also need to give thanks to God for all the other things that, all the other people that are included in his plan. You sit down and you pray, and it's so easy to say, Lord, my this, my this, my this. And say, Lord, let me include my brother and my sister. We thank God that he has saved them. We, We thank God that he's sanctifying. He who began a good work in them is bringing it to completion. That's, that's Philippians 1. And he says, it. I give thanks to God for you. There are some issues of the Philippian church, but he says, I give thanks to God for you because you're my partners in the gospel. We give thanks to God for the way that he's used us to minister to them and the way he's used them to minister to us. We give thanks to God that one day they're gonna be perfected, I'm gonna be perfected, and we will be in a new heavens and a new earth together forever. And we thank God. If Paul can give thanks for the Corinthian church with all the problems they had, How could we not do the same for all our brothers and sisters in the faith, including those we don't even know in other nations? We give thanks to God for what he's doing in Nigeria, in China, in Iraq, in Iran, and wherever in the world. We give thanks to God. That's God's will for us in Jesus Christ. So we go out from here and we enjoy the good things God has given us. We enjoy his common grace like food and sunshine and air conditioning And we enjoy his special grace, salvation, sanctification. We give thanks for those things. But we also give thanks knowing that the end of all this is all God's people in a new heavens and a new earth with a new body, there forever with their Savior. And so we can give thanks in every circumstance. Let's pray. After I'm done praying, just so you know, we're going to take a moment as a family, those around you, want to pray? Give thanks with your kids. Give thanks to God for one another and then we'll close with a final song. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you thanks for all the good things you give us. We have clothing in our closets. So we have food in our cupboards and food in our refrigerator. We have the means to get here and what, what, and what is lacking, your people have helped provide You, more more than food, you sustain us. We know that as man, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you've given us your truth. Your truth has saved us. Your truth sustains us, but your spirit through the truth matures us. Help us to continually give thanks. Forgive us for the many, many times that we're, we're discontent, We think about what we don't have rather than think about what we do have in light of what we deserve. Give us joy. May we, more than anyone else in this world, delight in the good things you've given to us because we know the one who has provided it in kindness and we know that we are his friends, no longer his enemies. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.